1: There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.
2: As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B, and advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. Welcome to Tales
3: to Terrify.
4: Good evening, Children of the Night. I am Stephen Kilpatrick. This is the first episode of Tales to Terrify without Lauren Santaro. You likely heard Tony's inclusion in the podcast feed with a movingly appropriate piece of audio recorded by Larry himself. Although I had never met Mr. Santaro in the flesh during our collaborations on the podcast, his loss was quite emotional for me. The outpouring of sentiments on the Tales to Terrify homepage on Twitter and notes to the Tales to Terrify email address have all been read, and Tales to Terrify thanks every one of you for it. I do want to let all of you know that Mr. Santaro had a couple stories that he had narrated for us that had not yet aired. I plan on airing those for a special episode in the very near future. In the meantime, pour yourself a strong drink and taste it in memory of Lauren Santaro. When Larry had initially became ill, he had done his hosting duties, following difficult medical tests, and when the conversation came up about putting the podcast on hold, he was not interested in that, if at all possible. Because of that, I feel I can say, without it being much of a cliché, the show must go on. So, we will be keeping these stories going and making sure that Mahler, the ink-black cat of the Nook, is fed and happy at least, as happy as a cat can be. So get settled. Find something cool to drink. To begin, I'd like to bring some news from our friend Dan Rayberts. Last year, Tales of Terrify supported and promoted an anthology he co-edited with Lee Murray called Baby Teeth, Bite-Sized Tales of Terror. The project was crowdfunded and published with Wellington's Paper Road Press, with all proceeds going to a children's literacy charity called Duffy Books and Homes. They reached a stretch goal, and all backers received digital copies of Tales to Terrify, Volume 1, for which they were immensely grateful. Baby Teeth has gone on to win two awards, New Zealand's Sir Julius Vogel Award for Best Collected Work, and the Australian Shadows Award for Best Edited Work, and the lead story, Debbie Cowan's Caterpillars, won the Australian Shadows Award for Best Short Story. Dan also tells us that the audiobook version of the anthology is now complete and will be launched via Paper Road Press shortly. When I checked Paper Road Press's website, it looked like 15 American dollars will get you the audio, so it may be ready to roll right now. The stories are all flash length, most being between 500 and 1,000 words, with the longest being right about 2,000. He's offered to provide a few selections for our listeners, so stay tuned. We'll see if we can get a few your way. As you might have expected, we have a few stories tonight, and our theme for the evening, family. Our first story comes to us from M. N. Tarrant. When I asked Ms. Tarrant for a bit of information to introduce the story, She told me she didn't expect things in her household to slow down enough to maintain a homepage of any sort or a Twitter account, but plans to make that happen in the not-too-distant future. She does have two short stories available on Affilians' WebZine site. However, their index is a bit behind, so it may actually be easier to Google instead of the site's own search feature. The link will be in the show notes. And now the story of a couple kids who listened to their mama, The Fire Pit.
0: Mama's got such a pretty voice. How are you supposed to hear Mama and all that clanking around? It's creepy, I said. And really, it was. Those charred bones swaying in the wind sounded like dry death to me, but not to Sarah. Back at the woods... "'She had stuffed as many as them as she could fit into her pockets, "'and she tried to shove them into mine, too. "'But I didn't want any bones in my pockets, thank you. "'That was just before school started back up again. "'And that's when Uncle Eli took us to the fire pit in the woods, "'where he goes hunting.'" "'Listen, Andy!' "'I listened to Sarah's new wind chime outside by our window.' I hung it up for her when Uncle Eli wasn't home so I could use his ladder and an eyehook I stole out of his toolbox. Sarah hung all those bones from a stick, decorated them with pink glitter and ribbons, and then I hung the thing up for her on the side of the house so Uncle Eli couldn't see it. He never mowed the yard anyway, especially with Mama gone. It's just the wind, Sarah. No, it's not. It's Mama. She says the wind helps her talk now. Like the trees. I listened to the clank of Sarah's creepy wind chime and the sound of the wind in the trees outside. It didn't make sense that Mama got up and left like Uncle Eli said. He told us she got mad at everyone and took off. But Sarah and I knew the only one she was mad at was him. I kept hoping that she would come back, but Sarah acted like she was already there. We lay curled up in bed, hoping that maybe Uncle Eli would stay out all night again, but the front door slammed and we both jumped under the covers, where we hid like two frozen balls. I could hear Uncle Eli stomping through the living room and down the hallway. Andy, Mom says Uncle Eli's taking us to the woods. The door burst open. Uncle Eli was a black shape in the doorway. And Sarah and I could both tell from the way he was swaying that he was drunk again. Get your asses out of bed and get in the truck. Move. We crawled out of bed and headed down the hallway. We both had time to put our slippers on and Sarah grabbed a blanket Mama made. We held hands real tight and she dragged her blanket to the truck. The ride in Uncle Eli's old black pickup was kind of like the other times I had ridden with him, except he'd never gotten us out of bed in the middle of the night before to go anywhere. His breath stunk up the truck with whiskey, and he was sweaty, like it didn't matter how cold it was getting outside. Sarah and I both crawled under her blanket. The night was dark, with no moon. The truck headlights lit up the dirt road in front of us, but the woods looked like they were full of black pits on both sides. Uncle Eli didn't say anything, and neither did we since we were both too scared to talk. I thought of Mama and looked at Uncle Eli's mean, sweaty face. He looked angry and a little bit scared at the same time, too. And then I knew. Somehow, I knew that because of him, I didn't have a mama anymore. I was scared, but I was starting to get angry, too. I think I'd hated Uncle Eli for a long time, but right then, I hated him more than anything for mama being gone, and I hated him for being mean. I hated how Sarah and I were always afraid and had to live like ghosts in our own house. Right there in that truck next to Uncle Eli, I decided I would do anything to keep Uncle Eli from hurting us again. Ever. Uncle Eli pulled the truck up in front of the fire pit and left the headlights on. Sarah and I got out and stood there in the cold while Uncle Eli grabbed an axe out of the truck bed. I thought about running off into the woods but Sarah wouldn't have been able to run fast enough to let us get away. You two, stand over there, and don't move till I get back, said Uncle Eli, and he took a drink from his bottle before stumbling off into the woods with his axe. Andy, see if Uncle Eli has any fishing line in his truck. Sarah started pushing through the ashes in the fire pit with a stick and picked out some things lit up by the truck lights. I watched the ashes float up in the breeze and stick to her hair. Why? I asked. Because I can't hear Mama. Hurry! I did what Sarah wanted, and found a bunch of tangled up fishing line that I brought over to her. She took a piece that I cut, and started trying to tie it around the things that she found in the fire pit, but needed my help. Geez, are those bones again, Sarah? She nodded. Of course they were, and she wanted me to string them up for her. After a while, we heard crashing around in the woods, like some drunk bear banging into trees, and we knew Uncle Eli was coming back. Sarah hid her project behind her back. Uncle Eli came out of the woods with twigs and leaves stuck in his hair and threw down a pile of wood next to the fire pit. Start building a fire, Andy, he said. Then he went digging through the junk in his truck bed for something, and Sarah tugged my sleeve. Andy, you have to hang this up. She held up her bones on a string. Okay, Sarah. I jabbed two sticks in the ground and strung the bones on a string between them. The truck lights shone on them, and they began to sway and clink in the breeze. We could hear Uncle Eli swearing in the back of the truck, and I looked at the cold fire pit. Uncle Eli wanted a fire, so I started to build one, just for him. Sarah stood still, listening to the bones with the blanket wrapped around her, while I built the wood up into a big cone shape. Mama says she likes the way you piled the wood. She wants you to take the rest of the fishing line and spread it around the pit. I could hear Uncle Eli grunting and something heavy sliding out of the truck bed, so I didn't think I had much time to do what Sarah wanted. I did it anyway. I had almost finished spreading out the mess of fishing line when Uncle Eli came around the side of the truck. Sarah screamed, and I dropped the rest of the line. Most of the time, Uncle Eli was scary anyway, but standing outside the line of the truck lights, Uncle Eli looked like a slouching black monster with long, deformed arms. What he dragged into the light was a big gas can in one hand and the axe hanging from the other. He looked crazy and drunk, with his dirty hair standing up full of dead leaves and that axe dragging the ground. He unscrewed the lid from the gas can, but then looked up and started spewing cuss words. I thought at us but then I realized he was pointing at the hanging bones. Don't you talk to Mama like that, yelled Sarah right back. Uncle Eli snarled and spat at her, then tried to run around the fire to get us, but his feet got caught up in the fishing line. That just made him madder. I guess he didn't think to let go of the axe and the gas can, so he spun around, swayed, and tripped up right across the fire pit. His head hit the stones on the other side of the pit, and I can still remember the sound of his head smacking the rocks. I wish I could forget it, but I can't forget anything now. The smell of gas was really strong, because a lot of it had poured out around the pit, and around Uncle Eli, too. His head was turned funny, and his arms and legs were still twitching, but Sarah and I just looked at him. When I tried to put Sarah to bed in the truck, she was crying, and she kept looking out the window to see if Uncle Eli had gotten back up to come after us. After she finally fell asleep with the radio on, I found a lighter in the glove box and some old papers. Uncle Eli's eyes were still open, but they seemed dull, like they were looking at something far away, kind of like dead people do on TV. I had been staring at him for a while, I guess. And then he blinked. I think I jumped out of my skin at first. And then I noticed that the only thing on Uncle Eli that was moving was his eyes. They had snapped onto me with bloody murder hate, and I just froze. Behind him, I could hear the bones. Okay, Mama. I grabbed the gas can and poured the rest of it on Uncle Eli in the wood, while his eyes rolled around trying to look at me. With all that gas, the fire caught on pretty quick and grabbed on to Uncle Eli. I piled on more wood and turned my back to the fire. I didn't really want to watch. The flames jumped, making shadows move around in the woods, like things out there were watching on the edge of the firelight. After a while, I threw on some more branches and sat facing the woods again, supposing it would take most of the night to take care of Uncle Eli. Around four o'clock in the morning, a high wailing sound like a giant tea kettle boiling on the stove came out of the fire. I sat up wide awake and scared to think I was listening to Uncle Eli, but a thin column of smoke and sparks shot up out of the fire pit and carried the horrible sound with it over the trees. All that was left of Uncle Eli was a burnt-out husk. Before the foster home took us, we buried Mama's bones under a tree. When our foster parents or people from the state ask us about Uncle Eli, and we don't cry or say much, they say we're still in shock, so now they leave us alone about it. Sarah and I like our foster parents, but sometimes I can still hear Sarah whispering to Mama under the covers at night.
4: The fire pit was read to us by Josie Babbin. By day, Josie is a biologist, a happy little cog in the grand machine known as medical research. When not at work or enjoying the great outdoors of San Diego, she can be found at home with her three loving companions— two feline, and one human. She records in a tiny bedroom library surrounded by literature and scientific works, as well as a few video game boxes. Our second story of the evening comes to us from Paul Jessup. You may remember that a couple weeks ago we heard one of his stories, and in his introduction I mentioned Glass Coffin Girls. Well, here this evening will be the titular story from the collection, Paul Jessup is a critically acclaimed, award-winning author, poet, and playwright. He has appeared in many different magazines, anthologies, and has a few books placed out in small and large publishing houses alike. You can attempt to email him at paul.jessup at gmail.com. Also, check out his website in the show notes, where you can find Glass Coffin Girls and Open Your Eyes. And now... A story about a fellow who has a complicated relationship with his mother. But, don't we all?
3: His mother did not approve of Emily. When he sent her Emily's picture from his cell phone, she texted him back, commenting that Emily was ugly. When he told his mother that he was in love, she threatened to set fire to his apartment building. Whenever he brought up the subject of Emily or marriage, his mother screamed and howled, and cleaned her gun. When his phone rang, he never let Emily answer it. He was afraid that it would be his mother, and afraid of what she would say to Emily, and how Emily would react. Emily wasn't the kind of girl who would take abuse sitting down. Lewis was sure there would be a knife fight, a gunfight, a duel. Pistols at dawn. Emily sat on his bed, "'wearing her princess crown. "'A quilt covered her legs, soft and blue, "'like butterfly wings, her skirt discarded on the floor. "'When I was a little girl,' she told him, "'I wanted to be so many things.' "'Lewis grinned. "'He sat on the exposed floors, "'the rough cherry wood grating against his bare legs. "'Yeah, I was the same way, when I was little.' She cocked her head, looking at him like a dog does, quizzically. Lewis shuffled his legs. Well, when I was a boy, I I wanted to be a cannibal. I wanted to be a rock in the field. I wanted to be a statue in the rain. She shook her head. Her hair moved over her bare shoulders, accenting her freckles in the sparse moonlight. No, no, she said. It's not the same thing. Lewis stood up. His body was like a knife in the light, a shadow cutting the moon into two eclipses. Maybe it is, and maybe it isn't. She pulled the quilt up to her chest. No, she said. Don't step any closer. Lewis pouted. It's my bed. She rolled around on it, her body claiming it. No, she said. It's my bed now. Lewis sat back down on the floor, shoulders slumped. He reached over and pulled on his robe. He knew she was right. This was her bed now. That was what she did. She found something of his and claimed it. Whenever she came over and spent the night, it was always the same game. She would undress crawl under a quilt, and then claim whichever piece of furniture she was on. If he tried to sleep with her, tried to curl up behind her, he would get a sick feeling, an empty and lonely feeling. Then he would go and find somewhere else to sleep. He wasn't sure where he was going to sleep tonight. What do you mean it's not the same? he asked. How is it different? What did you want to be? She blushed and pulled the quilt over her head, disappearing in the moonlight. "'Now you see me. Now you don't.' Lewis groaned. That was the signal that the conversation was over and it was time to sleep. He felt he should protest. He was a grown-up. He didn't have to take orders from anyone, not at his own apartment. Yet, in some way, he did not mind.' He liked it when she commanded him. He had first met Emily on a bridge. She was on top of the edge, looking down. Beneath her was a wall of iron that was black and twisted into ivy shapes. In her hand was an empty wicker birdcage. She wasn't wearing the princess crown that day. He would find out later that the crown was only for special occasions. She was wearing a black dress with silver designs all over it. He had stopped the car, gotten out. She turned and looked, and he asked her out on the spot. There was something about her face, something that haunted him every moment. It felt familiar, yet distant, like a dead loved one whose memory was slowly disappearing with time. Louis's dad had over 250 books. Archaeology books, cookbooks, history books, lexicons and illustrated encyclopedias. All about cannibals and cannibalism. The library, as his dad called it, was always locked. Lewis was never allowed in it, never allowed to look through the books. Of course, this didn't stop him. He would steal the keys. Smash the locks with a hammer. Break a window and crawl in through the broken glass, his stomach torn open and bleeding. And then he sat in his father's velvet chair, sipped a shot glass full of forbidden brandy, and read. His childhood was filled with these forbidden books, illustrated and tainting his thoughts. He had dreams of eating and killing. He had dreams of making himself... "'King Cannibal on Cannibal Island. "'Lord over all who came before him.' "'Lewis crawled through the darkness of his apartment, "'looking for a place to lay down and sleep for the night. "'He knocked on the walls, "'looking for a hollow spot he could curl up. "'He moved books off the bookshelf to make a wooden bed. "'He could not get comfortable. "'He crawled towards where Emily slept.' saw the bed that was now hers and decided that she did not own the space underneath the bed. That would be his island, his kingdom. It was cozy underneath the bed. He saw the ghosts of magazines he had long since stashed and forgotten. He curled up around them, the pages crinkling like dead leaves, and fell into a deep sleep. Eyes
2: Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply.
5: There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.
3: Two circles, then darkness smothered, running away. In front of him, two gold eyes staring back. Like fall leaves. Emily's eyes. Emily looking at him. Stomach on the floor. Seeing him waking up. That ghost of a memory. Flirting with him. I wanted to be a princess. Louis blinked. I guess that is different. Her eyes focused on him. You wouldn't understand. You're a boy. You have boy dreams, boy desires. You want to be something violent, something hungry. Lewis cleared his throat. He felt cramped and trapped and wanted to get out. The weight of her bed crushing him from above. What's so violent about being a rock? A statue? He was avoiding the threat in her voice. Cannibal? Cannibal? "'She said. "'How is a cannibal violent? "'I didn't say I wanted to be a murderer. "'It would be prepackaged, "'like sausages and hot dogs "'and ground beef and steak, "'except human.' "'Her eyes narrowed. "'That's even worse. "'It's sanitized without any real truth.' "'He pushed up on her bed "'and immediately retracted his hands. "'The bed was tainted.' like touching it would poison him. Well, how is being a princess truthful? Princesses live in glass coffins and hide from witches. How real is that? Her eyes disappeared. Her fist slammed into the ground. Fuck you, she said. You don't understand. By the time he crawled out from under the bed, she was gone. There were cannibal princesses in his father's books. If he found the book and showed it to her, she would understand. The tricky part was sneaking into his parents' house. Lewis still had a key, but did not want to be caught and forced to talk to them and explain why he was sneaking around their house at night. So he slid off his shoes and stood in his black socks. He held his breath, turned the key in the tumbler, he cursed at the noise of the locks clicking. He cursed at the sound of the door opening into the midnight hallway of his childhood home. He tiptoed through the halls and found the library. It was unlocked, and lights spilled out from the inside. He held his breath, hoping that it was only on by accident, that no one was in there, reading and waiting for his sneaking feet the library was empty he crept through the books looking over the shelves each book was memorized by years of childhood reading and rereading he had mapped them into his head the pages crystal and clear he would not be lost here he pulled down the exact book he was looking for and scurried out as fast as he could trying not to make a noise but leaving before anyone was wiser the next morning, his mother called. She sobbed on the line, her tears breaking her words into abstract phrases. You, you didn't, she said. Give that bitch a, a, a key? No. House broken into. Door wide open. Books are missing. Silverware gone. Clothes and jewelry gone. Oh, no. Oh, no. Everything gone. Shit, Lewis thought. I must have left the front door open. It wasn't Emily, he said calmly. It couldn't have been Emily. Oh, no, his mother said. It was her. I can smell her on everything. The stink of summer apples, like milk and cinnamon. Lewis spent the next week searching looking for Emily in all their old haunts. He found her on the bridge where they had met. She had a bird in her hands. The bird was dead. She was wearing her princess crown. They've traded places, she said. Louis could not respond. She held up the bird in her hand. Its eyes were black stones, lifeless they had traded places. Do you understand? No, Lewis said. Who traded places? Her eyes were intense, a golden beam targeted at his face. He was caught in it, frozen in the amber of her eyes. The bird and the cage. They have traded places, and you don't even ask me about them, when it's so clear what happened. "'Don't you remember our first meeting?' "'Lewis sighed. "'He wanted to show her the book, "'show her how they really weren't very different, the two of them. "'Okay,' he said. "'Why?' "'I didn't want my bird to be in a cage. "'So the day we met, I threw her cage over the bridge "'so she could fly around my apartment and be free. "'Last night, a dog walked into my apartment.' I think he stole my keys. He just pushed the door open and walked in on two legs. He opened his mouth wide and the bird, she, she sobs. Lewis never knew what to do when a girl cried, so he just stood there and watched. She thought his mouth w- was a cage, her cage, and flew into his mouth and the dog shook his head back and forth so fast he broke her neck. Louis looked back at his car. The book from his father's library was in the passenger seat. He needed to show it to her, but had no idea on how to change the subject. It was her home, Louis. I thought I was setting her free, but the cage was her home. Everything in it she owned, and I had thrown it away. And now... She found a new home, and it was the inside of a dog's mouth. Ick, Louis said, still uncertain. He broke in? She shook her head. No, he just waltzed in like he owned the place. Oh, seems oddly symbolic. She pushed black hair behind her ear. The dog? Louis walked towards her. The sky was gray and filled with pregnant clouds. No, the cage. You thought you were freeing her, and instead, you were killing her. She pushed him back. Fuck you, she said. You really don't understand me at all. That is the dumbest thing you've ever said. You think it's that simple? You think my emotions can be summed up into some pop philosophy you read about in Red Book? No, it can't. Sometimes you should really keep your mouth shut. Lewis watched her throw the bird over the edge of the bridge. Some part of him hoped that it would ruffle its feathers and break into flight, that her tears would bring it back to life. It fell like a stone. Splash. Let me drive you home. She walked past him. Her eyes were bloodshot and her mascara had run over her cheeks in a black river. No, she said. I, I don't want to go home. Carefully, he said. Oh, my apartment then? She looked at his eyes. Two large pleading circles. Begging her to please come home with him. Please come follow him. Like a trained dog. Sure. Mother was waiting for them on the front stoop of the apartment building. She wore patchwork rags covered in crow illustrations, splattered with grime and dirt. On her lap was a rifle. She looked out from behind two old wooden glasses. I want my stuff back. She looked directly at Emily. Louis stepped forward. She doesn't have anything. She didn't break into your house, and I never gave her a key. His mother stood up. Do you see what I'm wearing? All my clothes are gone. I had to dig these out of the basement. Emily was not scared. She was wearing her crown. She didn't take it. A window was not broken. The door wasn't smashed. The locks were all intact. Whoever came in had a key. You're the only one with a key. She must have stolen it from you. Louis shook his head. Did you report this to police? Yes, his mother said. Then let them handle it. She glared at Emily, finger twitching next to the trigger. Above them, a bird flew in circles, searching for a cage, for a home. All right, mother said, and walked past. As she walked, she glanced at the back seat of her son's car and saw the book. Lewis could not take his off his mother, glaring at her, staring at her, his knees wobbling and his mind racing. Her head turned slowly. She grinned. Jack-o'-lantern grin and did not say anything as she walked away. Emily claimed his bookshelves and his giant stuffed bear as revenge for being so ill-treated by his mother. Later that night, she claimed all of his books and even some of his floor, leaving him with the small spot under the bed and nothing else. He laid under there, listening to her breathe, imagining her naked body in his quilt. "'I want to show you a book tomorrow,' he said. She coughed. "'What is it about?' princesses he felt her moving above him the bed changing dipping digging into him you lie she said liar he could not get out from under the bed not without her permission he was trapped the apartment was hers when he tried to move on his own he felt sick and dizzy and broken Eventually, she let him out, let him cook breakfast for her on her stove. He made scrambled eggs and bacon. The bacon tasted funny, sweaty. I can't wait to show you this book, he said. You're going to love it. She pushed her napkin against her lips, wiping loose bits of egg. What is it about, really about? Princesses. She threw the napkin on the table. What do you know about princesses? You're a boy. The book is probably full of awful, disgusting boy stuff, like cannibalism or ritualistic human sacrifice. Lewis gasped, his mouth an open cage waiting for a bird to fly in. Why can't it be about both? She picked up the knife and fork. They were hers now. She owned them. Because it can't. It just can't. You don't understand. You never will. It's different when you live in a glass coffin. When you're walking through a castle and everyone around you is asleep. When a wall of thorns keep you trapped in a wicker cage. Lewis thought about life under the bed. About living in a house that was filled with her things. I do understand. Just let me show you. She stood, pushing the chair behind her. I don't want to see your stupid book. I'm going back to my apartment. Louis stood up, was off balance. He almost fell over, knocking the breakfast across the floor. He followed her, carefully, keeping his body hidden as she walked back to her apartment building. He had offered to drive her back, but she refused. He had offered to let her borrow his car, which would then be her car, but he didn't mind. But she refused. So instead, he trailed behind her, watching her. When she got to her apartment, he waited outside, sitting on the stoop. Cars drove by, people walked by, He waited to see if there was a dog somewhere, walking on two legs, a fistful of stolen keys ready to kill birds and steal everything in sight. He would protect her if the dog came. He would. The dog did not arrive. Emily did not come down. Hours and hours and hours and he was tired and realized that He wanted to be home, asleep under his bed, with Emily sleeping above him. His mother was on his stoop. Fifty dead birds lay scattered across the pavement in front of her. They were gray, with tiny black claws. Lewis thought they were beautiful and wondered how his mother could be so cruel. "'I've killed one for everything that slut you're sleeping with took,' He stood still, stood his ground. No, she did not take anything. She pointed the gun at him. Was he a bird now? He didn't feel like a bird. He felt like a cannibal king. I mean it. She laughed. Then what's Dad's book doing in your car? He didn't lend it to you. I know that. I asked him. He moved his feet nervously, felt like he was going to pee. He no longer felt like a cannibal king. He felt like a stone being kicked, a statue melting in the rain. I took it. Mother's eyes were magnified into worlds through the wooden glasses. He stammered, tried to speak. Stone doesn't speak. Stone can't speak. Stone can only be kicked and thrown and moved. Its voice is the whisper of it hitting the dirt, or the splash of it hitting the lake. The stones can't speak, can't breathe, can't move. Answer me, young man! He did not respond. She stood up and walked past him, leaving the piles of birds "'Littered across the ground. "'Fine, then,' she said. "'No matter what happens, dear, remember, I love you. "'Just remember that, okay?' "'Lewis would nod or respond or say, "'Yes, dear, of course, mother, but his lips were stone "'and his body was stone, so moving was wrong. "'Moving was illegal.' Mother carried on, further down the street, shooting birds out of trees as she went and leaving them dead on the ground. Lewis crawled back into his apartment, scooting across her floor, creeping under her bed and laying flat and still in the only part of the place that was still his. The phone rang as he lay under there, but he did not answer it. It was her phone now, It wasn't even his phone number anymore. The sound of her phone was a lullaby. It was a sweet song with the sound of the ocean as the instrumentation. Waves played like violins, seagulls like French horns. He fell asleep to the sound of her phone ringing. He awoke to her eyes. Staring in, magnified by glass. He pushed against the edge of the bed and realized that she had sealed him in. That she had placed a wall of glass between them. That he was trapped. Louis, what are you doing under there? He leaned his head forward, staring at her. It was hot now, burning up under there. The heat trapped, suffocating him. Get out from under there, she said. That is my coffin. Mine! I've been building it, making it secretly. I was going to put you to sleep, put this whole building to sleep, and lay in my coffin and wait for my prince to come. But you had to go and steal it from me. He pushed his hand against the glass. He could move it. He could free himself. But it was her glass now. It smelled like her. She owned it. Every time he pushed against it, it was like knives digging into his hand. "'I can't,' he said. His breathing was heavy, Waited. "'I... need your help. I'm trapped.' She stood up, her eyes disappearing. The heels of her shoes clicked on the wooden floor as she left. Her legs walked out of his apartment. He never even got a chance to touch her legs.' to put his hand against them, He never got a chance to kiss them gently, glancing his lips over the tips of her knees. She came back. Hours later, days later, Lewis could not tell. All time fell together in the glass coffin, loose and creeping up around him, sliding out of his vision. He welcomed the sight of her. He missed her, even though... She imprisoned him. She leaned down. She was wearing his favorite sweater, the one covered in pictures of bees. She pulled the glass away. Okay, she said. Come on, come out. Just let me have my coffin, please. Louis did not respond. He was Louis de stone again. She poked him with her finger. Poke, poke. Sleeping Beauty, she said. I guess you'll need this. She laid the crown on the floor next to the bed and then got up and left, her heels clicking on the floor. Stone Lewis wanted to move. He wanted to go after her, to tell her to stay. The floor was hers. The bed was hers. The crown was hers. He could not move could not trespass in her world eventually his mother came to visit she swung the door open with a loud bang she called out his name and he heard the sound of dragging on the floor and then the sound of click 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 like dog nails on wood he found that he could move He slid himself out from under the bed and felt a freedom he had not felt in a long while. He looked at the crown and cursed, kicking it across the floor. Diamonds spun, sending the light into the shadows. He was free. Mother, he called out. I'm in here, she said, in your living room. Come, I have a present. Lewis walked into the living room. The lights were off. On the floor was Emily, face down and in a pool of blood and broken glass. Her neck was broken. She had feathers pushed into her scalp. Poor Emily bird. Mother stood above her, but it wasn't mother. Was it? It was a dog standing on two legs. A dog with a handful of stolen keys. A dog with its mouth wide open. And Lewis thought of how comforting the mouth looked. How broad and big and spacious. He wanted to crawl into the mouth. Crawl back in. Crawl back home.
4: Glass Coffin Girls was read to us by Robert Smalles. Robert grew up in Salem, Massachusetts, and graduated from Salem State College with a degree in English in 1992. Always a storyteller, he did not start writing any of his tales down until late 2010. Over the past 12 months, he's managed to get 15 short stories accepted for publication, most recently a tale titled Photo Finish for the anthology The Ghost is the Machine from Postmortem Press. In the show notes, you can find a link to Postmortem Press's website. His work reading for the District of Wonders is his first foray into the world of narration, but he plans on doing more. More information about his writing can be found at his website, robsmollies.webs.com. Links will be in the show notes. And that will conclude our evening, friends, of a safe journey home. Enjoy your week, then come back here to us, won't you? And pleasant dreams.
5: Get a chiseled look in the jawline, sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC.